Today's read, the final chapter of the first book in the Midnight Trilogy, chapter 61, Celebration. Even though it was very early, I felt good in the morning. I got my 10 hours rest and I could feel the difference. I showered before making prayer with Uma in our living room. After prayer, I woke Akimi with a hot cup of tea. I was serving her today. After today, she would be serving me. Uma was excited about teaching Akimi to cook Sudanese foods and also to learn some of her Japanese recipes. But she respected the work that Akimi was involved in, especially after seeing her kimono art. She knew what it was like to have too many demanding jobs all at once. So she also served Akimi with care. I could see Uma's pretty fingers moving from the top of Akimi's head to the middle of her back as she gave her one long, beautiful black braid in an instant. We all rolled down to drop Naja with Miss Marcy. After a train ride together, I dropped both Uma and Akimi to Rockefeller Center. Both women had full days planned. Akimi had to have her hair and nails done at some Japanese salon where the Tokyo prices were triple the New York rates. She had to meet her translator and kimono team and get prepared for her public performance. I gave her a massive hug, lifting her off her feet. Then I had to push her away as she always had that lingering look in her eyes like she preferred to be with me. I had to smile when she went from clinging to me to holding Uma's hand in the middle of Rockefeller Square. But I had to go to Cho's to make some paper. Everything is real, even when you're in love. I was hoping Uma would enjoy her first language class. I thought three hours was a long time to sit in one classroom, but I figured if she was ever going to learn English, it had to start somewhere. Even Uma had that mother's look that emerges on their faces when their children are about to leave their side. I don't know. Women are like magnets, I thought. And as my father would say, women are 100% emotion. Love them, but don't obey them. There was a time when I did not fully understand these words, but now I did. Realizing that if the women had it their way, they would just remain wrapped up with their man and their sons and their daughters all day and nothing would get accomplished. Then, of course, every man learns that if he doesn't accomplish anything, the same women who didn't want you to leave their side would lose their admiration and respect for you. After work, Uma and I met up and taxied home to Brooklyn. We scooped up Naja and headed upstairs to shower and get fresh dressed. Naja wore a very beautiful hijab that matched her up with Uma. Uma wore her niqab for our trip out of our Brooklyn neighborhood, but removed it in the taxi. I was surprised. Even though her thick, beautiful hair and pretty neck remained covered, her face was opened and exposed. I thought about it for a minute, looked in the shopping bag I was holding for her and soon figured it out. Uma was still hoping to win over Akimi's aunt and uncle. She believed she made some progress that day at Akimi's uncle's store where she met them. I could see now that she had gifts in her shopping bag again, 
I just smiled. Of course, I believe in family, but in the case of Akimi and I, I believed that after they were convinced that our love was true and after a baby was conceived and born, their connection to us would come about naturally. Late afternoon, Manhattan was buzzing. The museum was in full use as New Yorkers and people from around the world moved in and out and around the place. Inside of the museum, I could see the reception area still carved out by the velvet rope. There were tables and empty used glasses left over. There were trays of mostly eaten finger foods and discarded bottles of wine. There were plenty of trash cans. This way, if you'd like to see the exhibit, sir, a friendly young white woman in uniform pointed. I want to have one of those pamphlets over there, I informed her. She went behind the rope and picked it up. I flipped through it. Akimi Nakamura is a 16-year-old artist born and raised in Kyoto, Japan. Her father is Naoko Nakamura, the chief executive officer and owner of the multinational Pan-Asian Manufacturing Corporation. Her mother was celebrated North Korean author Ju Yoon Lee, who died young of brain cancer. Akimi is an only child and a student at Kyoto Girls High School, an affiliate of Kyoto's Women's College where her father serves on the board. She is an artistic genius destined to make a tremendous mark on this wide world of art. Please allow her work to speak for itself. Her exhibit titled Asia Celebrates Mother Africa is incredibly controversial, personal, detailed, and unrivaled. Her decision to present the everyday beauty of African life as opposed to disease, famine, death, hunger, war, and poverty places her at the vanguard of forward-thinking youth, a true, rare, and artistic visionary. We entered the wing of the museum which held Akimi's artwork. We were directed down a particular corridor where her work was carefully mounted on the wall and illuminated. I was amazed. The first of seven pictures and paintings was mounted behind a glass frame. It was titled, Mother Africa. It was a drawing of two female hands, palms facing up. The design of the henna work on the hands was incredibly royal. In fact, it was familiar. I looked at it up close. I stepped back and looked at it again. I went into my memory and saw the exact moment in the lobby of the Palace Hotel where Akimi flipped my mother's hands open and studied her palms. These are Uma's hands, I told myself. What kind of a great mind does it take to take a picture with your eyes and reproduce it without a model or photograph? I began to see even more clearly now the beauty of Akimi's mind and the talent in her hands as I saw the intricate lines she had drawn with her pencil and the way she worked real Sudanese henna into her creation. I certainly understood the time it must have taken for her to do such incredible drawings. I understood why she needed to shut everybody down and close them out of her studio and go deep. The second drawing in which she used pencils 
Markers and Paints was titled Sacred Modesty. It was also of Uma peeking out from behind her veil. The way she drew the decorations on the veil Uma wore that day was precise, accurate, perfect. The way she captured the extreme beauty of Uma's slim face, her big, dark, beautiful, soft, concerned eyes, and both the feeling and expression that Uma carried made the picture seem like a real live person, a mother Africa, a queen. They were right. These pieces of art were unusual. They captured the true beauty of a slice of African life, like the drawings inside of the African pyramids, which never told a lie, and were never matched or rivaled by any other artistry. Akimi's work was the truth. The third picture was titled Humility. It was a drawing of an Islamic mother and son bowed in prayer to Allah. She captured with her pencil the posture of the prayer along with the fold of the clothes that the mother and son wore while making the prayer. She saw so much, I said to myself. She was watching even when we did not know she was watching. Even more, she was using everything in her environment to create her masterpieces. It was ninja style, I smiled to myself. It was the ability to take what others take for granted or even throw away and make something useful and beautiful with it. The fourth picture was titled Black Beauty. It was definitely Naja. It was an up-close drawing of my sister wearing her hijab proudly. It was the way she caught the look in Naja's eyes, the confidence and inquisitiveness which made the picture unique. There was no shame or regret in this Muslim girl child. There was no hostage in the hijab. There was no hunger or poverty or abandonment. In the drawing, Naja looked like she had the world at her feet and a bright, balanced future where her beliefs were an asset and not a curse. The fifth drawing, painting, was titled The Young Leopard. It was me. It threw me back a bit. It was me in the winter, the first day that she and I went out on a date. It was my exact face. The hair on my head in the drawing was my exact hair, which she had collected so quietly in the barbershop that day. I was sure of it. The clothes were drawn exact. My leather jacket and suede polo shirt, my low jeans, and even my kicks were the ones I rocked that day. She had poked life-sized holes in the painting and used real laces in the drawing of my Nikes. She even had them tied as I tied them then. This picture was tall, life-sized, about six feet tall and two feet wide. The sixth drawing, painting, was titled The Proof. It was of five beautiful Sudanese women standing sideways in a line wearing beautiful bejeweled garments. They were all looking at something with excited eyes. I wondered what Akimi meant by the proof. I thought about it. The familiarity of the art was in the third woman who resembled Sudana. Yes, it was her. 
every set of eyes on each of the young females in the drawing seemed to be focused on something they were all waiting for. It was as though the drawing had energy, even though it was an inanimate object. After staring at it for some time, I figured these were the young Sudanese women Akimi saw at the wedding who, like all of us, were in awe of the bride and the whole feeling of the celebration itself. The seventh drawing, painting, was titled, Missing You. It stopped us cold, Uma and I. Look, it's our father, Naja whispered. It is the same as the picture Uma has in her room. I know because Uma only shows me one picture of father, Uma and I said nothing. And look, it says here that she made this painting using pencil, markers, paint, and cayenne pepper, cumin, turmeric, black cardamom, and coffee beans. That's really nice, don't you think so? I heard her, but I didn't respond. I was connected to Uma's feelings, and her eyes were welling with tears. We waited for her from 5.30 until 7 when the museum closed. We were supposed to meet her at 6 p.m. I was pressed because I had to get to Brownsville, change into my game clothes, and play ball for the league. She's probably going to dinner with her family, I said to Uma and Naja. I called her queen's apartment and left a message on her voicemail. I called her cousin and the phone just rang. I decided that she definitely went out with her family to celebrate. They must have insisted and that was fine. We should go home. She'll call, I assured Uma. In my mind, I was worried about Akimi trying to make her way out to our Brooklyn apartment late at night. Alone, she is bold like that. We taxied to our apartment. I made sure Uma and Naja were safely inside. I wanted Akimi inside too while I played ball. I needed that for my comfort zone and my concentration level. I arrived exactly at game time. No warm-up, no strategy talks. Vega didn't bark. He just pointed to the hundreds of faces in the overcrowded park, smiled and said, Make me look good. I sank the winning basket. As the crowd cheered and my team celebrated and the Brownsville fans threw a tantrum and bangs, sat at the top of the bleachers with her girlfriends, I ran off the court. Vega, I gotta go. I'll check you later. Sunday. It rained and poured, a welcome break from the unusually hot and dry month of April. It was May now, and it seemed even the seasons were confused. After prayers, I threw down some tea and left. It was family day, yes, but I was going to get Akimi. I arrived in Queens at her uncle's house. I knew on a usual Sunday he would be at work. No one was picking up the telephone there when I called from early this morning. I wanted to check. I rang the bell. No answer. I walked around and tapped on the rectangular windows which I knew led to her basement apartment. No answer. 
I walked into their backyard to the converted garage art studio. I had never been back there. It was impossible to see through the covered windows. Drenched, I left Queens and headed to Chinatown to their family store. My clothes were dripping rainwater onto their store floor. I apologized, stepped out, wrung my clothes a bit, and stepped back in. Excuse me. I am looking for Akimi, I said to her uncle. He was colder than usual. Sachi emerged. Akimi's not here, the uncle said. Do you know where she is, I asked. Her father took her back to Japan yesterday, and she was crying a lot, Sachi said. The uncle spoke rapid, angry Japanese to Sachi, his young daughter. She disappeared behind the curtain. Is that true? I asked him, but I knew it was. My heart knew it. The uncle didn't respond, and I left. I stood still in the open air while cups of pouring rain dropped down from the afternoon black skies. It seemed as if even Allah disapproved of what was happening today. A police car rolled through, which almost never happened while I had been working on this block in Chinatown. The quick bleep of the siren switched on and then turned immediately off. It shook me to move on. I guess the uncle may have called the police because he felt threatened by what he thought I might do stationed outside of his store door. Instinctively, I walked to Joe's. He had no customers in the rainstorm. He looked surprised to see me on one of my days off, but wasn't really the smiling type. He walked over and placed his hand on my shoulder. Japanese girl leave letter for you, he said. Akimi, I asked. Not young pretty one who make bed in my basement. Different lady, he said. Young, I asked, trying to know if it was Akimi's cousin. Old chicken, he responded. I took the letter, flipped it around, just thinking. Japanese girl, drive you crazy, Cho guaranteed me. Thanks, Cho. Do you mind if I go to my locker for a moment? I asked. You don't have to ask, he said earnestly. I put my three carat diamonds on the jeweler's counter. Diamonds are one thing you can count on through the years, my father had said when he dropped them into the palm of my hand. Use them when you feel trapped. Give me a good price for them, I asked. Where did you get them, they asked. From Africa, I responded. How much will you pay for each of them? I had this same conversation with 12 jewelers before I accepted the price of $15,000 for one of the diamonds. The two remaining ones I wrapped back up and put away. In the Manhattan Travel Agency, I purchased a ticket to Tokyo, Japan. With the ticket in hand, I could get my passport issued in three days. I also purchased a rail pass to Kyoto on the Shinkansen bullet train. I could carry up to $10,000 cash with me into Japan without raising any suspicions or tax issues. At the translators, 
I paid a rush fee to translate the letter which Akimi left for me. I wanted to know what it said, but it didn't matter. Either way, I was going to Kyoto to get my wife. Thank you.